Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the director of the wonderful short, Telling People You're Native American When You're Not Native is a lot like telling a bear you're a bear when you're not a bear, a writer for shows like the upcoming Spirit Rangers, and a fellow cat guy to boot, Please welcome Joey Clift. How's it going, man? Yeah, thanks for having me. Also, apologies for my short film name being so long. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. I I, I think that it's great. It's a fun title, and it's a really great short as well. I think it's uh, something that a lot of people could stand to hear as well. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Yeah, when I I came up for the name for it, I didn't think I was going to have to say it a lot. <laughs> so like, I feel like every time I promote it, I'm always just like, yeah, I'm the writer director of telling people you're native American when you're not native is a lot like telling a bear you're a bear when you're not a bear. Yeah. That sounds about right. Anyway. Yeah. You know, yeah, I yeah. can relate a little bit with uh, the best little horror house in Philly. I don't <laughs> know that I would have picked such a long title if I had known I was going to be tweeting it so much. Yeah. 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 That's the <laughs> thing too. Is it's sort of like, Oh, it's like, that's like a lot of characters for Twitter that I'm just burning on the name of the thing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? Yeah, so my history with horror, I I would say that I'm not like a diehard horror fan to the level of a lot of my friends and a lot of people that I know. But I'm definitely somebody that grew up appreciating just like weird cult horror movies. I remember, um, I think I saw the movie that we're going to talk about today. The Night of the Living Dead 1990 remake. Probably when I was in elementary school, way younger than I like should have <laughs> seen it. And like really like loving it and being terrified by it. I think I saw like the the George Romero original Night of the Living Dead like on PBS or something like that. <laughs> like when I was, I don't know, like seven or whatever. And, you know, like that's that's really given me an obsession with not just like horror movies specifically, but like zombie movies specifically. So like definitely I'm like dating myself with this, but I would like go to Blockbuster and rent the original Dawn of the Dead, the original Day of the Dead. When I realized there were more of the dead movies, I just like <laughs> swallowed these things up like a zombie eats flesh. Oh, um, yeah, nice tie in. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like and even like when Land of the Dead came out in the early 2000s, it was like probably the first time that I'd ever been, I would say like, hyper aware of wanting a movie to do well in the box office. <laughs> like, I think I saw that movie four times on opening day. Wow. And it was like, I grew up in a small town in Washington state. We didn't have like a theater that was going to screen this, like not very mainstream movie. So I had to like take friends, like 45 minutes South, uh, like near Seattle to like an indie theater to see it. And I, and like every day, I feel like for the first month it was out, I was like checking like boxofficemojo.com <laughs> to be like, okay, so it's in the top 10. That's a good sign. What's its budget? Okay, at least made, it, made its budget. Great. Then George Romero made two more of the dead movies after that, which maybe he should have stopped at Land of the Dead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's fine. Um, and then that's definitely like extended to my love of things like, you know, 28 Days Later and like all the other various like zombie franchises that have come out since. It seems clear that zombies is something that really speaks to you is there something specific about it that draws you to it is it the practical effects or or the fact that it usually is a stand-in for something much more representative of like societal ills usually uh, that sort of thing what is it about zombies i feel like if i was to talk about it on a guttural level i would just say that growing up loving loving just like video games and stuff like that zombie movies feel like you can picture what the video game is yeah. i'm just like oh yeah it's like me and my friends back to back like blowing away zombies sweet <laughs> like it's just like the gamification of it is great and i feel like that's something that for a lot of people is the appeal of zombie movies 
when you get into those things, like the theoretical conversations of like, what's your ideal zombie fortress? How would you survive zombie invasion? Right. And, you know, it is just, it just opens up this like fun theory of like, oh yeah, could, would you survive if like the dead rose? <laughs> could you survive in a weird farmhouse? The, the, the theoretical possibilities of it and all of the questions and like, all that that it opens for me definitely are like, I think a big drive of me liking zombie movies. Yeah. I think that's a really great point. You know, it's also so individualized. Like it's like, what are your specific skills that in a zombie apocalypse would help you out? Like, you know, I'm not, I'm probably not going to be running all over the place, but I could probably help with like farming or something. And it's like, there's the long game, the short game, a lot of like just uh, thought experiments that you can kind of put yourself into when you are thinking about zombie uh, stuff. Yeah, and I, I want to say that I've recently come to the conclusion of my thought experiment and realizing that like I'm a comedy writer in my 30s who does not work out. <laughs> I would immediately get eaten. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I say I could help farm. There's no way I'm surviving the initial uprising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like... Like, I think that if I, if I like somehow manage to like, I don't know, like if the zombie invasion happens when I'm like at a supermarket and I could like lock myself in a storeroom with like a can opener and like <laughs> magazines I could read just in case I get bored or whatever, I'd probably be fine if I made it past the first month or two. Yeah. But like, oh yeah, the initial, like the initial <laughs> thing, I would be so done. That'll be rough. But part of what makes zombies so interesting as well is that there are so many different types, but we are talking about... One of the progenitors, really, of the entire genre by talking about this remake of Night of the Living Dead, because this is a particularly interesting example of a remake for me, because the ideal scenario for a remake is when a movie has a great idea, but maybe doesn't execute it perfectly. And I think that this takes George Romero's 1968 classic and progenitor of what we today think of as zombies and brings it into the 90s while still keeping it in the family, because... A lot of the same people are coming to this project. A lot of people that have worked with Romero over the years and who know sort of not only his aesthetic, but what he might want going forward as well. You know, he's involved in the screenwriting, uh, rewriting the screenplay that he and John Russo co-wrote for the original. And Tom Savini himself, who's a very frequent collaborator with Romero, is the director. And I just think that it's so interesting to really be like, well, first of all, there are, we'll talk about the reasons for this remake sort of coming about, but... Just the the way that they're approaching it as a remake, I think, is so fascinating. Prior to watching it for this podcast, I probably hadn't seen this movie in, I would say, probably, you know, one to two decades. It had definitely, like, been a good chunk of time since I'd seen it. And I think what I appreciate watching it now as somebody who works in the entertainment industry is, like, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons that this was made that we'll get into in a second, I'm sure. But it does feel like, oh, the first... Night of the Living Dead was basically a student film. Like, it was right. made for, like, a very low budget. And this, you know, though it didn't have a huge budget, the budget was about $4 million, it definitely felt like you could probably get a little bit, a little bit, not not quite as scrappy as the 60s version <laughs> was, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think that there was, like, a really good opportunity to undo a couple of the things that, like, were common complaints about the 60s version. Um, in the 60s version, Barbara was a very, I would say character that wasn't very empowered and wasn't really in the forefront and like sure passive the, yeah very passive character and the 1990s remake did a really good job of putting her at the forefront and it's very much her story in a way that's really cool yeah so yeah i mean like i think that like there were reasons other than just money to make this remake sure yeah absolutely well for, so 
let's just jump right into it. Part of why they were approaching this as a remake, it was for that money aspect, because when Night of the Living Dead was, their title was changed from Night of the Flesh Eaters, the distributor accidentally left the copyright notice off of the new prints. And so Night of the Living Dead entered the public domain immediately. And that means that um, despite Night of the Living Dead making $30 million at the box office, $234 million adjusted for inflation off, as you say, almost no money. It had a $114,000 budget, which is eighty-nine or 890000 adjusted for inflation. Romero and the people who worked to develop it saw almost none of that money because they didn't have any of the copyrights to it. So anytime that somebody was playing it, you know, they the, the theaters, all of the TV channels and everything got to just keep the ad revenue, the ticket sales, all that jazz. So it's kind of awful to think about George Romero creating such an influential work of art and then basically getting nothing from, I mean, nothing is relative because ultimately he created this franchise that I'm sure he did fine from, but you know, it, it's such a, a landmark watershed moment in horror history. And it, he, he didn't really see any of the benefit from it, which is, is, is awful for him. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that the person who accidentally left the copyright out on the first print of it feels bad about it? Or is he <laughs> just like, whatever. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that he, he it probably ate away at him. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> ate away at like, him. Much like a zombie. <laughs> exactly. He, um, he was, he, the real reason it ate away at him, though, is because he meant to just switch it to copyright for him. Uh, this was his big plan. <laughs> I mean, if, if it was, man, copyright law in the 60s was dumb. <laughs> but uh, this is, uh, like, I, I read into this um, right before we went on. Um, it is really interesting that I don't think that that's necessarily how copyright law works now it's just like that's how it was written in the 60s as far as films or whatever went and it was literally just a matter of like yeah when they changed the title of it because um night of the flesh eaters there was already a movie called flesh eaters that was like in theaters or you know was uh, recently released around that time right they changed it from night of the flesh eaters to night of the living dead and it was literally just like in changing the title slide from night of the flesh eaters to night of the living dead just the new thing just didn't have the copyright info on the bottom of it right so it's just like one person it's like one like probably person making minimum wage basically yeah. cost George Romero a hundred million dollars. Yeah, it's so funny too that it's like someone who is so far removed from like the actual like construction of the film that it's like the last thing. This is the post production, they're in the editing room, they're putting everything together. They're like, Oh, last thing, let's fix this title. <laughs> After all of that work. That's where it drops off. Like that's where the ball gets dropped. Has gotta. That's gotta sting. Yeah, that's just the biggest whoopsie an intern can do. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, like, it, and it is. It is really interesting that, like, I guess that for me, it, there's a lot of interesting effects with the copyright being left off of it and it being essentially a public domain work, legally speaking, for in the '60s into today. One of the reasons is that there are a ton of like unofficial sequels to it. Um, right. Like there is uh, like. Night of the Living Dead, 30th anniversary, which I think was um, edited together by Russo, uh, the co-writer of the original with Romero, kind of without Romero's permission. Um, there's like Night of the Living Dead 3D, which came out in, I think, 2010. Uh, there's like a ton of just like, there's like, I think, Night of the Living Dead reanimated and th stuff like that, that like, <laughs> that like are like cool ideas, but George Romero's getting no money off of it. 
And then there's right. also like the Return of the Living Dead series, which was basically like basically like Russo's unofficial sequels to to the Night of the Living Dead, like uh, not counting Dawn of the Dead, Day of, Day of the Dead, and stuff like that. That's the ones where zombies can talk and they say brains and stuff like that. On its own, that in and of itself is another like kind of watershed moment that wouldn't have happened. Because that's where the like idea of zombies eating brains comes from is is Return of the Living Dead, and that wouldn't have happened if they couldn't make an official sequel. And so, yeah, it, the like ripple effects of it are really kind of outrageous. But even even just like speaking personally, it's Night of the Living Dead is sort of like a bloody. It's a wonderful life in terms of like. Oh yeah, the reason it's on TV so much is because like networks don't have to pay to put it on TV. <laughs> so like for me to watch the original Night of the Living Dead on PBS in like the late '90s or early 2000s or whatever, it's like oh that would not have happened if it cost money to play it. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and uh, it is that ease of accessibility that that makes it have such a wide fan base and that gives it the room to grow out this franchise and everything. So it is it is a really interesting and. Uh, kind of unique situation although like you said you know that was also the case for it's a wonderful life do you think that it's the wonderful life do you th- do you think they'd survive zombies <laughs> no <laughs> no i don't <laughs> yeah i guess that that's what i want to see if like the ghost of christmas future takes into a future where there are zombies and he's just like and it's like this is what happens because you were mean to tiny tim or whatever i'm but i'm mixing that up with christmas story who cares they're the same story we need to hide in the old saving and loan <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean i feel like you could do like it's a wonderful life of the living dead and wow. like they're both public domain so there's nothing stopping <laughs> you <laughs> So true. Hey, throw Dracula in there if you want. He's public domain too. Yeah, throw Dracula, throw Sherlock Holmes in there. <laughs> I mean, baby, you got a stew going here. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> but in addition to just like a money issue, as it were, this was also they felt like a chance for them to be involved in the remake because there were rumblings that there was going to be a remake, whether they were involved or not studios being interested and so romero was like look we'll make this remake we'll give it that authority that they can point to and be like look george romero was involved in this he's part of the gang and this was so it was kind of like a win-win for everyone involved too they get a new night of living dead movie and he gets to take another bite at the apple as it were yeah, I would say that, like, I'm I'm glad that this movie exists. And I think that, you know, speaking, like, I think we've talked about a lot of the, like, legal ramifications of it getting made and, like, kind of them making it was sort of them. It was also, like, kind of a scheme from them to see if they could, like, get the copyright back by making <laughs> Night of the Living Dead so that nobody could call anything else Night of the Living Dead, which did not work. People still nope. did it. <laughs> uh, and also, I think this didn't do very well at the box office. So, really, it was like a failure in alcohol accounts, <laughs> other than it being a fun movie that I liked. True that. But it did make its money back, I will say. Just barely, but it did. <laughs> Tom Savini, like I said, is the director, and he was drawn to this project because he wasn't able to do effects for the original, uh, and in fact, only signed up to do the effects for this one before being convinced by Romero to direct it as well. This was his lone directed feature, although he had at this point directed three episodes of Tales from the Dark Side, so he had a little bit of experience under his belt, and he felt like it was time to make the transition. He had already been acting, he had been doing special effects, this was his time in the director's chair. 
And one other aspect of Savini's hiring that I find really interesting is related to his reputation as a bit of a gorehound. Because, you know, you look at his previous work, even within this franchise, you know, there's the head explosion in Dawn of the Dead. There's Joe Pilato getting torn in half and <laughs> right. choke on it in Day of the Dead. And that's not really the tone of the original Night of the Living Dead. And rather than shoehorning in additional gore scenes, which they felt would be disrespectful to the tone of the original, they focused instead on simply executing the gore to the best of their abilities, which meant a lot of forensic pathology research, actually attending an autopsy, and just kind of doing the <laughs> actually best. Actually attending a, a little an autopsy, uh, eating a human alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got to know everything. Yeah, they were just like, we got to know how a zombie would do it. <laughs> Nobody, nobody talks about this ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody found. Nobody t- talk about the drifter that we ate. <laughs> it's in their NDA. <laughs> but they still, even with that approach, had to make a lot of cuts to the movie to avoid an X rating, which. I find pretty shocking because even reading the ones that were put back in, it still feels like significantly less gore than a lot of the other movies that existed, even within this franchise. I will agree with you in that I remembered this movie being a lot gorier than it was. I I think that other than the daughter who was bitten by a zombie biting the mom on the neck, I don't think that there are a ton of like feeding scenes, which are like very common in zombie movies where like a bunch of zombies eat somebody and they scream and stuff like that. And um, even that, I think, was done, like, you know, similar to how it was done in the original, where it was like, oh, I mean, I guess this is probably a reference where she was bit, and then we see a trowel on the wall, like a molding trowel, and there's, like, a spurt of blood on it. In the original, instead of biting, the daughter stabs the mom to death with the trowel, so that's probably, like, some visual reference to that. But, um, yeah, like, there wasn't there wasn't a ton of just, like, outright blood gusher from somebody's neck <laughs> gore scenes. You know, even the, even like probably the one I would say like, you know, quote unquote feeding scene would be eating the burned alive young couple around the truck where like they're being eaten by zombies and the hero guy like vomits when he sees it. And it's like, that's still, you know, it's like, it's all wide shots. It's like, it's not done in a way that's like insanely graphic. Right. But I do feel like the way that they did the makeup on the zombies is like chilling to me in a lot of ways. And like, I think that they did a really good job of, and this is something that I think Night of the Living Dead, specifically the, the Of the Dead series is so effective at, is like doing everything they can to create subtle world building without calling too much attention to it. So an example is, you know, at the end of the movie, when the zombies invade the house and you see all these zombies just kind of meandering around the house, you see a guy, it's like only shown for a second, but he's got like a hypodermic needle in his arm (laughs) and a rubber tube tied around his arm. And he's like blue and super dead, but it's sort of like, oh, that's like. That that gives me just like a little story of how that guy died. Of like, oh, he was yeah. like a uh, he's a drug addict and he uh, did too much drugs or not enough drugs. Who knows? <laughs> what one of those? For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Um, not the right amount of drugs, I would say. <laughs> you know, and then there's also just like so many great moments of the the start of the movie. I if I'm ever in a position in my life to talk to Tom Zavini, I want to I want to ask him about this. The old man that walks up to the couple, to Barbara and her brother at the beginning, and like with a dead look in his eyes, keeps on saying, I'm sorry. Was that guy a zombie? What was his deal? <laughs> I don't think he was a zombie, but like he looked like a zombie. He was wearing a real he dirty did. suit. I, here's what I think is going on with that guy, because I was thinking the same thing. I think 
that he was like the undertaker because we see the like left open coffin yeah and so i think that he like saw this happen that's oh my god cat's going nuts over there hell yeah (laughs) um he saw this zombie get out ran away is in shock mumbling i'm sorry and he probably gets got pretty pretty shortly thereafter and becomes one of the zombies. Oh, uh, that makes sense. Currently. So if he like thinks he did it, he just like yeah. he accidentally <laughs> spilled a Mountain Dew on his on his corpse <laughs> and it rose and he was just like, Oh no. <laughs> Yellow number five strikes again. Yeah, just like, oh geez, this is like the third time this has happened today. I'm gonna get in so much trouble. <laughs> They, um, they say once you get away with <laughs> two times yeah, you're, you would slap on the wrist yeah yeah but but about a seventh time <laughs> <laughs> that's too much yeah yeah i guess that i never really thought about that that makes sense because yeah he does look kind of like an undertaker he's a little bit older we do see that shot of the open empty coffin earlier or la- later on and we do see like the presumably the person who was in that coffin the zombie with like the the yeah. cut back tuxedo. Um, <laughs> it slips right off him. Yeah, That's a yeah. funny moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, like, something that I appreciate about this movie, uh, specifically in the remake, is, like, how quickly it gets to it. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, maybe four minutes of the brother just really, really milking the four minutes in the movie that he has <laughs> before he dies. Really just, like, overacting as much as he can in a way that's really fun. And then four minutes in, a zombie shows up, that guy dies, and then we're, like, off at the races for, like, 120 <laughs> or for a, an hour 25, you know? Yeah, uh, I love that, too. I, I, look, don't waste any time, folks. Let's get right into it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> the rest of the cast was filled out with the inimitable Tony Todd in his very first horror movie as Ben, although he would go on to become an icon in things like Candyman and Final Destination. Patricia Tallman is Barbara. She'd known Tom Savini for a long time and worked with both him and Romero on Night Riders, Romero on Monkey Shines, and one of Tom's episodes of Tales from the Dark Side, so they had a long relationship. Tom Towles from Henry Portrait of Serial Killer plays Harry. This guy is really going for it in this movie, you know, t- talking about kind of overacting in a fun way. Like, the character of Harry constantly screaming going completely off the walls but like it just feels like this guy he understands exactly what they're going for yeah like he plays such a great villain yeah (laughs) he's just like and it is you know we're skipping around on the film a little bit but like his death at the end i still remember you know 20 25 years after seeing it for the first time because it's such an earned death Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like we watch Barbara just, like, murder a man in cold blood without <laughs> any reaction to it. And you're yeah. like, yeah, that feels... She's the hero in doing... <laughs> that feels like a good... That that feels like a good completion of her character into becoming, like, a very proactive, um, you know, person in charge of their own destiny. And also, fuck that guy. That's cool that that guy's yeah. dead. <laughs> like, For sure. Especially because for him to have been so cowardly and selfish the entire time and then to be like you came back for me <laughs> like yeah yeah it's 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 a great moment it's like for no sure. you don't get to make it out of this yeah exactly <laughs> um and uh, the guy playing johnny barbara's brother like you said he really milks those four minutes is bill mosley from texas chainsaw massacre 2 oh i didn't know that. yeah he's great but it, it definitely feels like watching it watching it yesterday like, oh, yeah, that guy, like, that guy knows he's only got, like, three pages worth of... He's, like, he's the center of the movie for three pages, and he's, like, I'm going to make as much use of this as I can. 
hey, I mean, they're coming to get you, Barbara, is like one of the big lines of the movie. So he yeah. was like, this is mine. I have the juicy part. Yeah. And then he like does the grab and like fakes. And he's getting pulled by, <laughs> underground by zombies. Yeah. He gets uh, some great physical comedy in there, too. He's demonstrating it all. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's just like, oh, I got to I got to get it all in. <laughs> This is going on is real. <laughs> and as far as the actual zombies, people were so eager to be part of this movie that extras were recruited from states away, as far as Kentucky. Unfortunately, Tom Savini was basically miserable on set, thanks to the producers involved. When Romero wasn't there, they were constantly quashing his ideas, constantly cutting stuff to hurry production, keep costs down, even though they were on schedule. Tom said that he only about 40% of his ideas made it in. Ideas like starting in black and white and then turning to color, which I think that's an interesting idea. I don't know how yeah, that's I feel the, about yeah, that. Yeah, that's the thing is like, you know, like respect to Tom Savini. He's clearly a genius. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, I feel like I heard that. And then like other ideas were like flashbacks or like hallucinations where Barbara sees her mom. And I'm like, eh, I think we were fine without we- that. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's it, and it makes it that much more impressive that the movie is as great as it is with that kind of stress placed on production. Whether those cuts were for the best or not, having an unhappy director is never good for the movie. And so the fact that it does manage to come together in such a cohesive fashion, I think, speaks to the quality of the work. It's cohesive and it's also like it's also such an efficient movie in that Uh, You know, like, you look at this, and, like, especially as somebody working in the entertainment industry, I realize why this was made and why this was greenlit is it's, like, one location. We're at a farmhouse for an hour and a half. Like, it probably wasn't really expensive in, like, a lot of those ways. Right. Like, it was just a really, like, you know, there's, what, like, five actors up until the end, basically. (laughs) Like, five actors and then, like, a bunch of zombies who you said, like, they were not at a lack of people that wanted to do it. So, but it, it doesn't feel like a movie that was, you know, purposely in such a small location for budget. Like it doesn't feel like a cheap movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that part of that is like the zombie makeup being really good. And like, just because the movie like moves so much and there's not really right. like, there's not really a moment to stop and focus on like, Oh, they've done so many scenes in this like living room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's it, like, it, like I wonder, like, do you know in the production, like, how how many shoot days this was? How long of a shoot this was? You know, I didn't see that information anywhere, and I was looking for it because I it did feel like it must have been very quick because it is just in the one location. You kind of just bang it out. Yeah. Uh, Tom Savini, if you're listening to this, sorry we made fun <laughs> of your ideas. Also, will you email <laughs> us and let us know uh, what, what was the deal with that old dude and how long did it take to shoot this? Best little mailbag at gmail.com. Yeah. Send it in, Tom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Contemporary response was pretty tepid to negative, with best little horror house villain Roger Ebert giving it one star and putting it on his most hated list. Boo. Along, yes, I agree. Classic Raj. <laughs> along with uh, derisive comparisons to New Coke and grave robbing. <laughs> now, Wait. <laughs> New Coke I get as a reference... To like, oh, this came out in 1990, New Coke. It's like, oh, rebooting something just to reboot it or whatever. Right. But grave robbing? This was George Romero's movie. I know. It's I, like, and he's still alive. <laughs> they just wanted to be like, look, it's kind of like zombies. Yeah, we're, it's we're like working the movie's a zombie. I'm a good writer. <laughs> but appreciation of the movie has grown over time. And reaction notwithstanding, it did at least make its money back at the box office. Grossing five point eight million on a four point two million dollar budget, so 
it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, what a good what a good review for how a movie did is like eh, they're their best. <laughs> well, we can certainly love it despite the poor performance. I guess where where do you sit on this compared to the original? So that's the thing is that I I like a lot of the original. I think that it does work really nicely in black and white. And I think that it kind of lends a little, like there's like kind of a coziness to like the, like transporting yourself back in time and before zombies were really a thing. And they are, it does feel like a student film at times. And like, they're kind of just going along. But I think that when they made this, the fact that everyone has been working in the industry for a while, they all have a better understanding of their craft. They tightened up the script they bring Barbara out of basically a catatonic state that she's in in the yeah, first totally. one. I would say that even if I like the aesthetic of the first one better, I think that this movie is doing a lot of other things much better. Yeah, I I think that like this one, this was the perfect one for me to see when I was a kid. Because I, I just don't feel like I would have had the patience when I was younger <laughs> to watch, you know, a black and white student film from 1968. <laughs> You know, regardless of how, like, classic it is, it's sure. just, like, that this was in color and the zombies looked scary, like, uh, was, you know, so much more of a draw to me at that age. I, Absolutely. I honestly, I don't think I've gone back and watched the original in a while. I might, just now that I'm, like, older and have more patience, I might, like, go back and do that just to, like, see if my opinion changes. Mm-hmm. But I think that this might be, like, just for me personally, a thing of, like, oh, my favorite one is the first one I saw, and that was the 1990 (laughs) version, you know? Sure, yeah. Well, so I actually rewatched it before this conversation as well. So as we go through, I'll make sure that I point out some of the things that I like that this is doing better, in my opinion. So to get into the actual movie, Barbara and Johnny are bickering in the car as they drive out to their mother's grave in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. And this is an interesting change right away, because in the original the mom asked them to drive out and pay tribute to their father's grave. And in this, Barbara is the one guilting Johnny into it, which creates a much different dynamic for Barbara when she's feeling that guilt later. Yeah, it also, it it sets up that Barbara is somebody that feels like she's under her mother's thumb a little bit. So visiting her mother's grave and like guilting Johnny into it, it definitely sets her up as somebody who's like not in control of her own destiny. And which is, um, you know, like in hearing about Tom Savini's pitches for like hallucinations where he see where she sees her mother, you know, on the face of a zombie or whatever. Right. Like it makes sense. Like that's that's definitely like what he was going for in a way that like it was cool and worked. Yeah, absolutely. And like we already kind of talked about, we we get the classic. They're coming to get you, Barbara, when Johnny and her are kind of hanging out by the grave. But the guy stumbles up to them. He's still human kind of creates an eerie tone right away where it's not quite the attack, but it's certainly a precursor to it. And you're, you're off balance. They're off balance. Everyone's like, what the hell is going on? And then when the actual ghoul, as they're referred to in this movie, you know, zombie, as we know it attacks them, takes out Johnny real quick as Barbara runs for the car. Yeah. uh, Johnny, I don't know. He, he should have put up more of a fight. (laughs) He even had like leather gloves on to prevent getting bit. He he could have gotten a little, little, a little more action. Yeah. In so shame on you, Night of the Living Dead <laughs> character Johnny. Also, you had the car keys on you, probably. Yep. You really, really screwed things. You up. Really screwed things up. <laughs> I'm glad you're dead. 
nah. that, Johnny. Yeah. No, I'm not going to go. He deserves to be alive. Everybody deserves to be alive. I agree. I agree. One thing I do also like about this beginning part, though, is that we quickly see them in various stages of rot. Not only gives us a good variety of effects from Savini's team, but also helps to keep things fresh. You know, pun kind of intended. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. Oh, <laughs> zing. <laughs> and uh, I just think that that's that it, it all looks great. Right there, you get the autopsy zombie. You get a guy who's got a little more decomposed. Barbara gets back into the car, but they know how to use tools, which does also kind of play into some of the movies that had come before this, where we see Bub in Day of the Dead kind of learning how to... Use a gun, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Barbara gets away on foot after the car crashes and finds this abandoned farmhouse. A couple things to break down here. First of all, they do exist in the original as well, but I really like the way that it lingers on the stuffed animals here, kind of leering from their position of not being alive, but still preserved in this facsimile of life, uh, sort of like the zombies as uh, at large. Yeah, it was good. It was good, like, visual storytelling of, like, well, this is the theme of the movie. Strap <laughs> in. <laughs> and uh, I just want to go back to what you were saying about kind of, like, the different stages of rot of the zombies. The shot of the open casket with no zombie in it, and then you see a guy like who like looks fairly alive, but then you see the back of him and like the the his like tuxedo is cut in half, and then like it starts to like bunch down as he's walking, and then you see the autopsy scar. It's like such an effective way to show like, oh, these aren't these aren't like monsters. This is a dead body come back to life, you know, like, yeah. like it is just a good way of like showing and not telling in terms of storytelling. It's the kind of thing where putting that so close to the beginning and then to jump literally as far ahead as I possibly can, when she's literally going like they're us, we're them. And everyone is treating them just like monsters. It does kind of bring you back to that very beginning moment where we see that this is literally like somebody who could have been being buried that morning. And it is, it is just us. Yeah, man. George Romero was a poet. <laughs> <laughs> he sure was. I love that guy. <laughs> Second of all, when they when she gets to this farmhouse, I love the hand tease where you think that there's going to be a zombie reaching over the railing and then it's just the animated hand and it's like a fake out where you're like, oh, it's just a hand. And then there's the farmer zombie up top who pulls falls over as well. Yeah, zombies really need to learn how to use stairs. That would behoove them certainly <laughs> yeah that was also like I, I guess just what i was talking about earlier is like the pace of this movie does feel like pretty unrelenting there aren't really that many moments where, where you're like taking a breather it's just like <laughs> it's like either zombies are physically attacking the main characters right this second or they're desperately trying to figure out how to like stop the zombies from attacking them five minutes from now like, it's just, it just keeps going in a way that, like, is really cool and really, it's like a good pace. Yeah, and it, it creates an environment that feels like it would be overwhelming for the characters. That kind of mania, having to run around constantly, being constantly under the threat of attack, always rebuilding as we see the barricades are constantly being torn down. Even in this moment where she runs to, like, the back door and there's another zombie out, out back and she, like, laughs briefly there's like a little a little it just escapes her and i love that moment it feels kind of more authentic to laugh in that moment than it does to scream to be like what the hell is happening like who are these people when i i know we're jumping around a little bit but i think that there is there's something interesting to be said about like 
And well, once again, the thought experiment of what would you do in case of a zombie invasion? Dawn of the Dead is a really good example of like, if Night of the Living Dead is like, oh, these people just saw zombies five minutes ago and they're just like doing their best in a panic. <laughs> like uh, Dawn of the Dead is a movie where like, oh, these are people that have had a significant amount of time to like prepare, clear things out, you know, right. build fake walls in the mall. Uh, you know, create like secret passageways and stuff like that. And they're like very prepared because they're in a literal mall to like, you know, defend it. And like, it is interesting that it's sort of like, oh, this is, this is what happens when a bunch of characters are immediately taken off guard by this crazy thing and have to cope with the literal <laughs> dead rising and trying to eat them while also not trying to die. And then Dawn of the Dead is like, oh, these are characters that are a little bit more capable and aware in this world in a way that doesn't feel like overkill, but it definitely feels like it's sort of kind of a callback to night of the living dead. And then it ends with like, Oh, they're all kind of screwed up, screwed regardless, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And like Donna, like Donna, the dead is like thumbing its nose at everybody. That's <laughs> like, I could have survived that if I had 20 minutes and a drill or something. Right. <laughs> it's like, Here's literally military people. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They had guns and a whole mall, and they still got fucked. Yeah, totally, totally, <laughs> totally. When all hope seems lost, here comes Ben, runs right over the zombie in front of her, which is very fun. Oh, yeah, that's that, dope. That stunt work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the zombie gets broken in half. <laughs> His spine clearly shattered. Hell yeah. Good. Take yeah, that, zombie. Hell yeah. <laughs> he helps her clear the house. He gets a fun, like, kind of like a drop kick in there smashes a crowbar into the zombie's head this is probably like the clearest action that we get where it's not like just uh like hands grabbing people and like very like close up and uh looks like tony todd's having fun and that means that i'm having fun some there's something really cool about the intro of his character in that like uh, th this movie does such an effective job of like giving us little snippets of information without really going whole hog on it. And it mm -hmm. creates the appearance of like a very rich world with a lot of crazy stuff happening beyond the snapshot of it that we're seeing in the movie. Like that character, he clearly survived zombies at some point over the past day. He's clearly capable. We get like some little information of like he came from like he he visited the city where things are even crazier. And um, now he's like trying to hole up in a farmhouse, but we don't really get we don't really get a ton of info about him. But there's just enough where it's like, oh, I would watch a prequel of like what was what was what was this guy's life like two hours ago? You know? Yeah. Let's see Ben. Yeah. And and, and I t I totally agree to a point where I think that it is very effective to just be like. I was at the diner, and you're like, "Did he work at the diner? Was he a patron there?" Like, yeah, where did so he get that crowbar? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how did he learn to like? How did he learn that they don't like being drop kicked? Right. That's I'm always asking that. <laughs> yeah, Do yeah, zombies yeah. like being drop kicked? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like maybe, and then, then you try <laughs> it, and you're like, "Oh no, they don't." <laughs> and we wouldn't have known that without Ben. Yeah, yeah. They start to barricade the house as she kind of deals with her shock because the truck he came in on is out of gas and they don't want to risk getting stuck in the middle of nowhere. And I want to point out that Tony Todd, for me, is a big part of why I love this movie. Now, don't get me wrong, Dwayne Jones, very, very good in his own right. And I, I love the, the character of Ben in the original as well. But when Tony is like describing the diner getting shot up and it being like hell on earth out there, I believe him. And yeah. I I think that this uh, this is much more uh, of a believable environment than the original one ever was for me. 
Wait, what was, I, I forget, what was the setup in the original one as far as like the environment or what, uh, I guess, explain that a little bit more. So we see like the newscast at one point where they're like, they think that like the satellite exploded in atmosphere and there's like alien particles dropping down on Earth. Right. <laughs> like that's it. But getting someone to like sit in front of this fire and we see like the harried look and, and a great actor really emoting on screen like that's never that never really happens in the first one we don't get a minute for him to like kind of gather what's happened yeah and it's like thousand yard stare where it's like this guy's seen some shit exactly exactly and that's another thing that's really great about like i think how this movie sets up like there's always this question i feel like from viewers with movies like this of like yeah but why zombies (laughs) <laughs> or like how like how are there zombies? What was it a curse? Was it a was it a Dracula? What happened? And um, I I love that in Romero zombie movies they like never really explain it. It's like it's just a crazy thing happened. Science isn't immediately gonna know like oh it's a curse. Got it. <laughs> like you know it's like even like a, a little like a little later in the film. Uh, when the newscast is being played, the newscaster is like, maybe it was like a missile test. Maybe it was a satellite. Maybe it was like a disease. Who knows? All we know is there are zombies. Deal with it. <laughs> like, Yeah, and the CDC is even like, there's no way that this is dead people coming back to life. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's that's like some crazy. Weird virus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I also love that. And I like that even within that, they do kind of, I mean, the missile test kind of feels like an homage to the original yeah. reasoning, the where he says that, like, some people claim that it's a voodoo curse, which is sort of the origin, uh, yeah, origination. The white zombie, of, yeah. Exactly. Well, White Zombie was the first ever zombie movie that came out in, like, the 30s or something, right? Right. And and it's where sort of the 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 mythos of the zombie uh, comes from before it was the Romero zombie. It's just, it's just a nice way to kind of be, be like, use your imagination. It could be whatever you want it to be. <laughs> yeah. I think that like star Wars is a really good example of like getting too many answers to questions that didn't really need to be answered. <laughs> like, you know, not to turn this into a seven hour conversation about star <laughs> Wars, but it's like, Oh, the force was way cooler when it just felt like this unexplained thing. And then we found oh, you out. You don't love midichlorians? I mean, I guess that like, <laughs> it's not that I don't love midichlorians. It's just that I'm not sure if I needed to, I don't, I'm not sure if knowing about midichlorians made me like star Wars more. Yes. I 1000% agree with you. Leaving some things up to mystery is I think like an effective storytelling technique that like, I feel like, you know, Reddit and Twitter is always just like, yeah, but why the force? And it's like, yeah, just, just figure who cares yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah, like <laughs> the characters like wouldn't, you know, these random people in a farmhouse wouldn't immediately pull out a chemistry set and figure it out. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, I don't know. They don't, it's like not important that they know they're just trying to survive. Like, right. Luke, Luke has to go to quest diagnostics and take a blood test to see how many midichlorians yeah, he's got. Yeah, like, wait a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, you got a lot. Must be a Jedi, you know. <laughs> but uh, I digress. Yeah, uh, to your point, though, I do agree that leaving it to that mystery is a really good move. Yeah, but I think that Romero also, like, he's got such a clear idea of what the rules for zombies in his movies are, that which is they're, they move slow because they're, they're reanimated dead people who like have some level of rigor mortis, so they can't move that fast. <laughs> um, like they don't talk cause like they wouldn't have like that level of high functioning memory. 
you know, they could maybe be trained to use basic tools as like Day of, Day of the Dead sort of explains and the Night of the Living Dead kind of like hints at a little bit with the rock. But like there, there is just, you know, like a, a zombie bite is not what turns you into a zombie. It's just if you die, you turn into a zombie and a zombie bite kills you faster because like a dead body's mouth is probably real <laughs> gross and will get real affected. Yeah. You know, like it is just like such a clear setup of rules of how zombies work in his movies that have since been pirated by, you know, like the walking dead, a hundred percent uses Romero zombie rules. There's, um, you know, the, um, world war Z a hundred percent uses Romero zombie rules, not the Brad Pitt movie, the book, right? Like there is just such a clear set of rules for why zombies exist and like, or why zombie exists and what they can do. And it's like the danger of a zombie isn't one zombie. The danger of a zombie is that, and like, sure you could run away from them because they move two miles an hour tops, the danger is that they don't stop. So at some point you're going to need to sleep. Right. And like, they're not going to. And like at a certain point you might think that one zombie is laughable, but if you're surrounded by 20 of them, then like, what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. They don't need to sleep. They're not feeling any pain. So if they're just throwing themselves at the wall of the house, eventually it'll give. Yeah, totally. Totally. To their surprise, however, they're not alone. There are actually others who had hidden in the cellar while they fought the zombies, including Tom and Judy Rose, two youngsters who are dating and Tom's uncle who actually owned the house. Well, he, no, he's not there, but Tom's uncle owned the house. But we, there's also Harry Cooper, who is uh, an ill-tempered person to say the he's least. He's a real jerk. <laughs> yes. And he's already lied about not hearing them upstairs. So getting off on the wrong foot there. Um, his wife, Helen and their daughter, Sarah, who is downstairs uh, and injured, although we don't know that just yet. I do feel like the young couple, I think it's uh, Tom and Judy, you said, I I do feel like they were a little bit underdeveloped other than being like the young couple who like lives at the house. We don't really get a lot about like how they feel about kind of, you know, the zombie apocalypse. I think they're interesting characters, but like they don't really serve a ton of purpose other than just being young and wanting to help. Right. And like we do see a little bit about about Helen and Harry, like their dynamic like Helen is somebody who's clearly equally panicked about this, but she also like has basic human empathy and like, yeah. you know, wants to do her what? best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Harry's just like a crazy person. <laughs> and um, I think the daughter, uh, Sarah Cooper, she's uh, laying on a table and then she turns into a zombie. But um, yeah, but yeah, I would I would say that like I like I like what we got on the main characters, but I wish we would have gotten just a little bit more on the young couple about what makes them tick. Yeah, I would agree with that too. They also all quickly start butting heads as Harry wants everyone to lock themselves in the cellar and wait for the authorities so that there's only one entrance to guard. But Ben doesn't think that trapping themselves is a good idea and that they should stay upstairs to give themselves options. And here's where some of the performances really start to kick into overdrive. And I I think that they're great. You know, this argument between like, you can be the boss down there, I'm boss up here, and him being like, you're all going to (laughs) die. Like, it's just uh, the mania that I've already kind of touched on, I think it was really kind of uh, visible in the character of Harry. Um, and when they ultimately go their bitter separate ways with the Coopers downstairs, um, Tom and Judy stay with Ben and Barbara upstairs, boarding up the windows. Yeah, and if you haven't seen this film, the emotional acting of every character probably after the first five minutes is like a 10 out of 10 at all <laughs> times. <laughs> Which like... <laughs> Honestly, it's understandable. Ghouls are raising from the earth. Like, it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, you would. I, I buy why everybody's at, like, such a heightened level of stress. 
Harry is certainly not making things easy because he's not only arguing with the newcomers, but he's also been arguing with his wife. She wants to go upstairs because Sarah is getting worse. Meanwhile, the banging upstairs from the construction is drawing more zombies. I love this moment where Barbara looks outside and you see the same like bunch of zombies that we had seen. And then one more like crests over the hill and you're like, uh oh, yeah, that, that, that is also something that's like really effective is they use a lot of exterior shots from the house of zombies approaching the house. And it's like, you know, at first there's like maybe one or two and then and, and it's like and the way they did it is really effective where it's like the same shot used over and over again of like the shed in the backyard out the front door and they just like slowly as the movie goes add more and more zombies to it at first there's one or two then there's like five then there's like 20 and then there's a ton and it's just like yeah. oh yeah like uh <laughs> this uh maybe we should have turned the lights out on this house earlier and been <laughs> quieter yeah that would have been a good idea i mean barbara doesn't even want to stay in the house she suggests that since the zombies are slow and clumsy that they should just take their chances on foot Ben disagrees, though, and they're all very pleased with their barricade work until it's immediately busted down by zombies, and yeah, they'll have to get right back to hammering. very subpar barricade work, I would say. <laughs> Not to judge. I get it. They're in a position of stress, but it's like, oh, they could have, they like, put that door on straighter. Like <laughs> He, like, wrenched in the nails and everything, and it, he's like, well, this is fine. Or it's just like, and this is, I guess, just the level of thought I've put into this over the past 25 years of my life. <laughs> Is like, wouldn't it have been more effective if they would have nailed the doors onto the outside of the house? Like, because wow, so like, true. Because like the nails are like the nails are like like push aren't going to stick because yeah, yeah. you could just push it out. But like if you nailed wow. to the outside of the house, then the zombies would just pound on it and they couldn't pull it down. You're so right. Yeah, You're I so would. Right. I would have totally <laughs> survived this. <laughs> Um, the heavy doors have all been replaced by Tom's uncle who was fixing up the place and their lower quality lumber, which I really like when Tony Todd just punches right through. The, oh, the, that's a the dope. That's another scene that like has stuck with me ever since I saw it the first time of just like, yeah, like what's his exact line when he, pu- he like, it's punches, no good. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, he's like, these are, these doors are fine. We got better than nothing. Yeah. He punched yeah. through and he's like, no good. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's really great. And then Tom remembers that the heavy doors are still around in the cellar with the Coopers. <laughs> also, that's just great storytelling of like, oh, that gives great conflict of like the Coopers have said, like, we'll never open this door. We're staying down here. Also, like their daughter is like who's injured is laying on a door. So like it does open up just this really great conflict as to like why these characters really need to go back down to the cellar to get their shit, you know? Yeah. Ben is, as much as he has been more restrained, he is also, like you said, clearly operating at, like, a 10. Yeah. As far as, like, his uh, his emotions being heightened. And so and ben he's is threatening like, And them. Ben is the most calm of anybody. And yeah. he's, at, he's cool and collected at a 10. Right. <laughs> it's like everybody else. Like, I feel like, I feel like Harry's at, like, a 40 out of 10. Yeah, he and I mean he literally like slaps his wife when she goes to let let Ben in at the door, and then he does let them in anyway, rather than have the door get shot open. So bad guy Harry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a good character moment here though, where Ben tells him that they should grab some blankets from upstairs to cover their daughter, but rather than admit that they need even one thing from upstairs, Harry uses his tuxedo jacket instead, and I just think that that is so indicative of his character at large in that one moment 
Well, yeah, because they're the, the way that the moment is set up is they're they're grabbing all these doors from the cellar, and then Harry looks at the door that his daughter's on and is like sarcastically like, "Oh, you're gonna need that one too." And Ben has a real human moment where he sees they're going through something, and yeah, like he offers to get blankets and offers to help, which is like a good way to show that like Ben is like a caring, you know, he's like in a crazy situation, but he's like a caring person. Yeah. Who like cares for more than just himself, and yeah, for Harry to completely like sit, like refuse that help, is it's just like a really great character moment for like both characters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Helen goes to help look for the keys to the gas pump out back so that they can escape in Ben's truck when the barricades come loose again, which is the current plan. Uh, a few more points here. First of all, Judy Rose, maybe not fully developed, but great screamer because she is really howling <laughs> during these moments. Yeah, I think that like I think that she's really good at like sounding terrified. Yeah, <laughs> which like you know maybe that's all you need for a movie like this. I just I just <laughs> wish that like I just wish that her and Tom had just a little more, you know, a little bit more to them than just than that. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I I do agree with that. But I will say, and this is something that I think that the movie does better than the original is in addition to creating that environment outside that we believe in. I think that this movie does a much better job of creating a basis for Harry's fear because in this one, the barricades are constantly being torn down and needing repairs. And that doesn't really happen as much in the 68 version. There's not as much constant repairs needing to be happened that would give someone the impression that like, it's already time for us to be like down in this cellar. He's still an awful person, but it does at least give a little bit more of an understanding of his position. Yeah, he, like it definitely justifies his feelings of like uh, things aren't going so great up here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they they all act like they know what's going on, but they're clearly under a lot of stress as well. Right. Harry tries to literally drag Helen downstairs, but she refuses, and uh, Barbara kills the entering zombies uh, as well in another way that demonstrates that they are already dead but reanimated, which is something that Harry has been refusing to believe. That's probably other than the other than Harry's death. That's probably my favorite kill of the movie is like the shirtless skinny zombie comes through the window <laughs> and she just keeps shooting it. And she's just like, they're already dead. And yeah. she like plants uh, one right between the eyes and the zombie just like flies out the window. <laughs> that's a really good moment. And uh, everyone is like, Oh, what is she doing? Like, she doesn't know what, like, she's gone crazy, and she's just like, no, like, I know exactly what I'm doing. I am cool and collected. You need to understand exactly what we're dealing with here. Something that I really appreciated about Barbara's character in terms of, like, showing her visual development is that, like, her wardrobe changes in subtle ways as the movie progresses to show that she's becoming her own person and the master of her own destiny. One example of that would be after they kill the uncle zombie who fell off the balcony earlier in the movie, she takes his boots and then puts them on. Cause prior to that, she was wearing wedges um, in the cemetery. Then she like kicked them off so that she could run. So she was barefoot and then she put boots on. She could, so she could be a little bit more capable around this point in the movie. She's wearing a dress that she was wearing when they were visiting the cemetery. She like takes the dress off, puts on pants. There are just like a lot of moments like that where it's clear that she's like transforming not just internally, but externally. Yeah, and I mean, you compare her character to the original one, where not only does she not do anything, really, in the 68 version, like I said, she's basically catatonic, compared to this one, where she is actively contributing to the conversation and the decision-making process, but also, in the original, she gets just, like, 
spoiler alert, because this is a pretty big difference from for the original one. So if you plan on watching the 68 version out there, skip ahead 30 seconds. Also, she gets, also like that movie came out. <laughs> 70 years 60 look i'm bad at math i'm a comedy writer it came out 50 years ago and know. has been in the public domain since yeah, then yeah, so. it's been in the public domain <laughs> since then so eh, i don't know like just like i'm not telling you how to live your life but like also i'm not gonna apologize it, for probably. spoiling this movie <laughs> Um, she just gets dragged out the window. She gets killed about three quarters of the way through the movie in a very kind of just matter of fact way, you know, and it does kind of feel like she's just used as a vehicle to get us to the main story in the 68 version. And in this one, she feels much more like an integral part of the story. She is the protagonist. And I think that that's, that's, I would say like, is probably the biggest shift between this and the 68 version is in the 68 version. Ben is very much the main character in this version. Barbara is very much the main character, just in terms of like how people progress and how in people's character arcs and stuff like that. Right. Harry hears the TV going upstairs, previously just an emergency alert, but now a live broadcast report, and this is where he lists a few of the speculated reasons, um, and he starts to bring the TV downstairs, and when Ben sees this, they start fighting over it, and in the scuffle, it falls down the stairs and smashes. Now, Harry claims that he wasn't sneaking the TV into the cellar because it won't get reception, but you must admit that he was definitely being sneaky, and so maybe call out, man, be like... Hey guys, look at what's on the TV and instead of like like hiding it under his shirt and like walking down the stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was basically like like as if you were sneaking a pizza into a movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of like another thing upon rewatch is like if Harry's plan was to bring it downstairs just so that like you could be more aware of what's happening while like holding up barricades. I get it, and his logic is sound as to like oh he wasn't bringing it to the basement because there's no reception in the basement. But it still just feels like a weird, a weird move from a weird. Yeah. Harry's a weird guy. <laughs> That's classic Harry, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They check the corpse of Tom's uncle, and they do find a set of keys. Hell yeah, the first feeling of triumph, really, in this whole movie. Barbara also gets some revenge on the zombie who attacked her and Johnny at the cemetery. So this is really, this moment feels like a big turn for everyone. And you're like, oh, maybe things are going to turn out okay for them. Yeah, that's a great moment. Judy Rose, Tom, and Ben make a break for the pump. And I love the way they shot Ben with the torch fending off the horde. I think that him on the front porch there is just absolutely fantastic looking. Yeah, there, there is also like, this is a, a theme that George Romero played with in future movies. Um, I guess future movies in the in chronologically is the zombies are afraid of fire. Like, <laughs> like that's something that like they, so they do have some basic instincts outside of the need to feed. And like, it's something that they explored a little bit more in land of the dead in 2003 of like, they were drawn to fireworks and stuff like that. Like there is definitely like light and fire and heat is something that like has some effect on them, either distracting them or scaring them or whatever. And uh, that, that's another one where a question that I've got that, I, once again, if I ever meet Tom Savini, that I would have is there's a point when he bursts onto the, um, onto the porch with the lit torch and he's fighting a zombie. And there's a point when he's like waving the torch around and like just like a little bit of the building catches fire. <laughs> and then he like kicks the zombie off the thing and then he looks and like puts the fire out with his hand. And I'm wondering if that was supposed, if that was, if, did, the set, did he accidentally set the set on fire? And was that, was that, 
uh, actual Tony Todd being like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they just kept the camera rolling. Yeah, yeah. It seems very possible to me. Because <laughs> it's such a small moment that like, like it kind of feels like if that was a directed moment, that's like masterful directing, but like it just mm-hmm. feels so real. And the way that he like puts it out with his hand feels very like, <laughs> it feels like almost like a character break moment because he's so intense and focused on getting out of there, you know? Yeah, yeah. I agree, and it is it is a fun moment, uh, even if it is real, yeah. uh, and perhaps even more if it's real. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, he does fall off the back of the truck as they take a turn while they're making a break for this uh, gas tank. Yeah, and their 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 reasoning for that is that uh, Judy can't hear them when they're screaming. Uh, she's driving the truck, so like presumably she isn't aware of the chaos that's happening in the bed of the truck as Ben's right. trying to grab on and get in. Unfortunately, while Tom is trying to unlock the pump, none of the keys work. And in a fit of frustration, he shoots the lock, which sprays gas everywhere, including all over the torch in the bed of the truck, creating a huge fireball that kills them. Hoisted by his own petard, truly. Yeah, R.I.P. Tom and Judy. We yeah. really didn't know you that much as characters, <laughs> other than you presumably didn't like getting burned alive. Sans to reason. Yeah, yeah. Back at the house, Sarah has succumbed to her bite wound and reanimated, attacking her mother, who basically just gives up. And Ben does fight his way back to the house, which I love. And he gets to the door just as Cooper tries to take the gun from Barbara, which leaves her open to attack. It's coming through the wall or through the door and everything. It yeah, just like, looks like, really great. Yeah, like all the like all the barricades are bursting down at this point. This is just like peak chaos. Yeah. Um, she gets away, but Cooper gets the gun, he wastes the bullets, and he weakens the barricade even more by just firing willy-nilly right into the boards. Um, and then he does head downstairs, only to be greeted by Sarah. He refuses to shoot Sarah, taking shots at Ben instead when he tries to take Sarah out. Barbara shoots Sarah, and Ben shoots Cooper, and Cooper shoots Ben. There's a really good shot that I appreciate, and like I guess like I really appreciate the symbolism of this moment of... You can see the zombified daughter, Sarah, lurching toward Ben. As you can see, Harry kind of like out of focus in the background with the gun. And it is just this this moment of like, oh, he's like made his choice to not grow as a person and not take in new information. And he's like <laughs> clearly at this point sided with the zombies as far as, yep. you know, as far as like his character is concerned. And yeah, like there is just, it's just this really intense shootout between these three characters. It's also worth adding, you know, just like a, a fun kind of zombie world side effect is that while this is happening, like, a police officer zombie, like, you know, gets dragged into the room and, like, beat up. I think Ben kills him on the porch or something like that, and they drag him in. They see him, realize he's a cop, and really quickly go for his gun. And he's got, <laughs> yeah. like, two guns. He's got, like, a small, like, a small side revolver, and then he's got, like, a, a service pistol. Like, I think Barbara, like, takes his uh, his bullet belt and, like, wears it like a bandolier. So, like, they're strapped yeah. at this point. They're, like, ready to <laughs> yeah. do the shit, you know? Hell Yeah. And she looks fucking cool as hell with that bandolier on. Yeah. Tony Todd, Ben, tells Barbara to go as Cooper flees for the attic, shutting it behind him. And Ben says that he's going to stick it out in the cellar instead. Barbara finds and kills this zombie that she thinks is her mother. I think it's her mother. It's her mother. That's for sure. Even even when I saw this in elementary school, I tracked it like, oh, that's got to be her mom. (laughs) I mean, they were there to visit her grave, so yeah, they were there to visit stands her grave. To reason. And like her reaction to it, and that that is such a good moment of like, that's her like a hundred percent becoming her own person and becoming the master of her own, her own destiny. She literally slays the reanimated corpse of her mother. 
Um, yes, it's a, a nice little ironic twist of the knife as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just like that's her character kind of reaching her full potential. Yep. And back at the house, Ben kills Helen in the basement. Now, he also hears over the radio that the safety zones have fallen. Uh, the, the, the voice of the announcer is Romero himself, which yep. I think is fun. That's a fun Easter egg. Yeah. And he looks over and sees that the gas pump keys are hung up and nicely labeled and everything. And he just becomes the Joker and he just laughs to himself. And it's just like the realization of like, oh, yeah, if we would have worked together because the, the, the gas keys were in the cellar, nicely labeled. If we would have been cool to each other, we would have been fine. We would have all gotten yeah. out of this. Like it's our it's our egos were our undoing, mm, as they so often are. Yeah. Barbara finds a group of locals who are roaming the countryside to clear it of the undead. I love the line. What in the name of Jupiter's balls are you doing out here? Uh, she goes back to their camp and she takes stock the next morning, seeing that they've been creating like a zombie rodeo kind of with like barbecue and beer and lynched zombies. Um, yeah. while they've been at each other's necks and fighting for their lives. It's a big shock for her and for us. Yeah, it is. That is such, And that's when she says the line of like, they're us, we're them. Yeah. However the exact line goes. And it's like, it is just, you know, this realization of like, wait, are we the monsters? I think we <laughs> yeah. might be the monsters. Yeah. Um, it's certainly a commentary on sort of how we treat the least of us being more indicative of our characters. And I think yeah. that we've seen that the whole time with Harry and the way that it extrapolates out to this group as well. Yeah. And it's just very George Romero. Like he's, not a satirist in terms of comedy, but he's a satirist in that his work always has some greater societal point to it. Like mm-hmm. the original Night of the Living Dead was very much about racism in the 1960s. Dawn of the Dead was very much about consumerism. Uh, Land of the Dead was about like wealth disparities and things like that. You know, like it, the zombies are always a stand in for something, you know, in greater societal stuff. And this was such a great, like specifically seeing like, you know, those moments of like how, these people were treating these zombies like it really just echoed of like oh i i know exactly what you're like doing with this george romero and it's like very effective and gives me chills and makes me think yeah. that you know like oh were the zombies the bad guys the whole time <laughs> or was man the bad guy wow so true so yeah. true they go back to the house she enters while they build a pyre outside and she finds ben uh, who uh, after the door to the cellar gets chainsawed in and he looks at barbara before hastily getting shot by the sheriff who says, take that out of here. Very dehumanizing again. And the sheriff, by the way, is played by the original Johnny, uh, Russell Striner. So that's fun, too. Oh, I didn't know that. That's dope. This is also one of the big changes from the original. Like we said, that one is very focused on Ben as the main character. He gets confused or mistaken for a zombie when he exits the house in the morning of the original and shot by mistake, as opposed to actually being a zombie in this one. Harry emerges from the attic alive and is delighted to see that she came back before she quickly draws her gun and shoots him in the head uh, with the sheriff coming to check it out. She says he's just another one for the fire and goes out to watch the bodies burn while people hoot and holler around it. And we get some photos of the fallout as the credits start rolling. Yeah, a thing I, I want to point out about Harry as a character really quick is 
He had some of the best like zingers in the movie. He kept on calling everybody like lame brains and like he was like you loonies. Like I think that he calls people loonies like seven times in the movie. It's, uh, it's very fun. It's, it's very much like oh yeah, this is the late eighties, early nineties movie in terms of like how they view how villains act. It's like very it's very RoboCop, you know. Um, and uh, and yeah, he actually works for Omnicorp. Yeah, probably. Yeah, what do we think? What was that guy's job? What did he do before this? Oh, man. He was a banker. That guy was a banker. Yeah, that sounds about right. Why was he wearing a tuxedo? He was, uh, I think they were like going to a party or something. He said that they were they were on their way to somewhere, somewhere fancy, I think he said at the beginning. Yeah, that that's, that feels about right. Um, and yeah, and like, uh, you know, we were talking about it earlier, but like, even even the realization that there's an attic in this house, we're like, oh, if they would have holed up in the attic, they would have been <laughs> fine. Right. like... That like the the problem with being in the cellar is that there's no there's no other exits there's no windows or whatever. But if you hold up in the attic, presumably there's a window in the attic so you can climb out. And like it's like you have more options if you're higher up than if you're like. Down also, below. they literally could just pull up the ladder as we see. So yeah. there's no way for them to get at them. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like that. That's just an example of like their implements to survive were right there. It's just their inability to work together is what effed them. You know. So true. And I think that that is a great segue to our final segment, which is where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And uh, I'm going to let you start things off. Okay. Wow. Best horror movie ever made. Okay. Well, like, I mean, movie ever okay. Made. Like full disclosure to listeners. This was like my fifth option of <laughs> was like, <laughs> we're oh. getting up there in episodes. I was folks. like, oh, I wanted to do 28 days later. So, um, but I'm going to stand by it. This is my best one this is my favorite (laughs) choice i think that for me this is the best horror movie ever made partially just for personal reasons of like the staying power of it of like so many of these so many of the moments from this film are like burned into my brain having seen them 25 years ago or whatever um this is a movie that's very like unrelenting in its pace it's um it is an hour and 30 minutes long i think an hour and 28 technically it does not feel like that it moves fast and is very efficient. And I think it's the perfect perfect example of a low-budget horror movie that does not feel like a low-budget horror movie. Also, like, something that I really appreciate about media, I talked about this earlier, is, like, when it says something greater than what it is. And I think that this movie is very effective in its commentary about race, misogyny, essentially just, like, white fragility, um, yeah. and, like, a lot of other things that... Um, you know, were definitely present in the 1968 version, but I think that they were like distilled in um, a really great way into into the 1990 version. And the reason that to me this is better than the 1990 version is that I feel like this is just a bunch of filmmakers kind of going back and telling the same story, but with um, you know 25 more years of experience in the entertainment industry and um, the ability to kind of do it the right way. This does not feel like a student film; it feels like a feature film. And you know, though I know it was like critically panned when it first came out and like didn't make a ton of money in the box office. I definitely think that, like, if you're at all interested in, like, Romero zombie movies or The Walking Dead or the millions of other things that have inspired Romero, that have been inspired by Romero zombie movies since then, I think that this is a really good movie to, like, add to your watch of those movies just because it's, like, it's all of those things plus just, like, a fun as hell movie. Yeah. Yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think that it is a beautiful example of how to do a remake, first of all. Uh, in terms of taking the story, do, paying honor to it, but still making it its own thing. 
there are a lot of changes from the 68 to the 90 version. And I think that by and large, they are pretty much all an improvement. And I think that the performances are a lot of fun. I think that Tony Todd is spectacular as Ben. I think that he's really great. And I love Tony Todd in general. The acting's great. The acting's so good. Yes. It's there's just a lot going on. Like you said, there it has that that Romero message that we love to see in in all of his movies. And uh, I think that this taking a very similar tack to the original one, but shifting it in a way that comments on misogyny much more than the original did and the way that women are treated in these, uh, you know, like high stress moments and everything. They never like check in with her, despite the fact that she is one of the most capable members there and has the, is the quickest to accept the truth. Even I just think that there's so much great stuff going on. Tom Savini is such a master of his craft in terms of special effects. And the fact that the, the makeup and everything on the zombies is so good while still not feeling like it's completely removed from the original. There's just so much great stuff going on, and that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Joey, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man, and please tell people where they can find your work, watch your short, follow you on Twitter, all that jazz. Yeah, thanks again for having me. This was a ton of fun. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at JoeyTainment. You can follow me on Instagram at Joey Clift with like five or six eyes. The reason for that is a 12-year-old took regular Joey Clift, so I had to settle <laughs> with a slightly changed version. And um, Classic. <laughs> yeah, uh, my short film um, is called Telling People You're Native American When You're Not Native is a lot like telling a bear you're a bear when you're not a bear. You can find that on, uh, you know, on Vimeo. And uh, it's also like, you know, if you go on my Twitter account or go to my website, joeyclip.com, there's easy links to all this stuff. And, yeah, um, it's in the bio on Twitter. Yeah, and yeah, stuff, yeah. So, and um, I just want to promote that uh, this has been a part of the Joey Clift has some free time, so he's spending it <laughs> guesting on podcasts, Summer Tour 2021. Uh, wow. You can follow that at hashtag JCHSFTSHSIGOPS2021 on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and it's going to be real fun. There's probably more stops. Who knows? I don't know. Wow. Uh, guesting on podcasts is fun. And this was a fun podcast to guest on. Awesome. Well, I had a wonderful time as well. And I'll certainly be checking in on the other stops on the tour. I'm thinking about making a tour t-shirt and selling it. <laughs> I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I do that, I will definitely have this podcast name and the date that I was on it on the tour. Wonderful. <laughs> there will pro- there'll probably be merch if I like have the time. Sure. Hey, why not? Right. Yeah. yeah Get yeah. in while the getting's good. Yeah, yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. Check out the Patreon for the show. There's all kinds of fun bonus episodes, including uh, one where me and Alana Johnston talk about the other best horror movie ever made. Freaky Friday from 2003, starring Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis. Ah, oh, that's fun. So, <laughs> Lana Johnson's great, too. She's super funny. It was a really great episode, and there's all kinds of fun bonus episodes on the Patreon, so you can check that out there for just a few bucks a month. That's it. Rate and review. You know you know the drill at this point. Sweet. And uh, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Ooh. Ah. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>